You're listening to the Substandard Model. Cool. Right. Uh, so, Henry, my, my next fact ensemble is going to be to do with hybridization in animals, hi- hybrids and stuff. That is animal hybridization, like a mule. Actually, I was talking about mules earlier today with Norea. Interesting. How, how did the conversation grace its way over to mules, I wonder? Well, she's, she brought up mules, I can't remember. And then I said, mules are shit. They're like bad horses because they're like more donkey and you don't really want donkey because donkeys are small horses. But it turns out that mules tend to live longer than horses. Yes, there is a disadvantage to being, to being a mule, though. There's a distinct disadvantage. What, you can't have babies? You can't have babies, yeah. Mules aren't fertile. And you, you might take that as obvious. Like Hybrids can't be fertile. That would be insane. They're 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 not supposed to come under God's green earth. You know, they're their mistakes. Yeah, but why aren't they fertile? Okay, well then, traditionally, hybrids aren't fertile because they contain information from two gametes that aren't really compatible. The idea is they can't really make one distinct sperm, one distinct egg that is mule because there's too much different stuff going on. So they're too genetically diverged right. that they can't package all that all that divergence nicely up in an gamete in order to make babies. They can live, but they can't produce. That's interesting. It's weird that it's too complicated to produce a sperm, but not too complicated for a horse sperm to meet a donkey egg. Well, that is, it is a bit weird. I mean, the process of fertilization is pretty messy anyway, and a lot of, a lot of hybrids and like mules and stuff don't properly make it out. You know, hybridization is, is, is fraught with a long list of casualties, people trying to make leopards and tigers and leopards and camels or humans and yeah. camels i saw that like lion tiger like ligers are around um but they're not they're not they're, yeah. they're not having a great time our ligers they're huge though aren't they they are well yeah i, was, I mean That's... obviously they're, they're not bigger than either a lion or a tiger i don't think really um i thought they were i don't know so hi future sam here future sam um is coming to tell past sam that he was wrong and Henry was right. And actually, ligers are huge. They're so big. They're bigger than either a tiger or a lion. They're like 11 foot or something. Absurd. They're like the biggest thing ever. And um, I think he was thinking of a ligon, which is another lion-tiger hybrid. And it is smaller than lions and tigers, or about the same size. And um, you might wonder what the difference is between a, a ligon and a tigon. Um, it turns out that a, a liger is a male lion and a female tiger. And a tigon is a male tiger and a female lion. There you go. Every day's a school day, I guess. Right. But yeah. But but I think um right. but, but yeah, hybrids. The idea hybrids are generally considered bad, pretty shit. If they happen in the wild they die immediately and nothing really goes on. And if they happen in zoos then you you get people to pay and see them, but then they can't have babies. Pretty useless. Actually Hybridization happens quite a lot in nature. Not only that... In nature? Yeah, in nature. So, here's a very, very basic example. Um, you, you get hybrids between different subspecies, and those can be fertile. So, for example, you know how sometimes you're walking in the park and you see some ducks that look a bit like normal ducks, but they've got, like, white on them, and they're a bit messy, and they look like they've just been drawn by someone who's never seen a duck. They're just a bit kind of screwed up. You know that that bit that, that and that that's called a is that a goose duck? Thank God it's not a goose duck. No, geese and ducks are a bit too far apart for for them to even get together. I think, but that's a so it's, it's called a confused duck. 
confused duck. Yeah, well, I call it a confused... I don't know if it's actually called a confused duck, or I've just met so many people that call it a confused duck that I assume it is. But uh. I think it is. And, and that's when a farmhouse duck, which is a domesticated mallard, breeds with a non-domesticated mallard, and you get... A, and farmhouse ducks are all white. They're the old McDonald ducks. So they're undomesticating themselves. Kind, it's yeah. like a dog having sex with a wolf. Precisely. It's like a dog having sex with a wolf, and it makes a completely crazy thing. But those things that are completely crazy, there are actually quite a few of them, and they can breed with each other and make slightly less confused ducks or slightly more confused ducks, depending on who they breed with. And they can they can keep going. So, you know, that that's, that's a hybrid, kind of. But then you might say, well, Sam, that's not a proper hybrid, because they're the same species. Well, actually, you can have a lot of hybrids between species that exist in populations in the wild. And not only that... But you can have populations between genuses, genuses that are fertile in the wild. Did you know that? See, I don't. I don't know my tax. I don't know my. Oh my, my um, god! No. You don't know your tax on that's so poor. Well, right. Sam, here's what I'm going to say. Not everyone who's listening is going to know the difference between a genus, a species, a class, and a phylum. I certainly hope they will. But if they don't, they will now. <laughs> uh, just, I'm going to no. take 10 seconds to explain the order from top to bottom. Kingdom. Is... Can you send me the oh. taxonomy corner jingle <laughs> to add the in t- at this point? The taxonomy corner jingle. Ooh. Uh, yeah. Oh, that's tempting. That is tempting. But that's Ben's taxonomy corner, and Ben doesn't feature whatsoever in this podcast, unfortunately. Yeah, I know. I'll just add Sam. I could do a live performance. really perform- bad dub. I could do a live performance for it. My guitar's over there. I could do a live a live text do a live nah 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 send it to me and I'll I'll, I'll dub it I'll dub it <laughs> alright fine, fine uh, the, okay well this is going to take 10 seconds anyway grab the popcorn fetch the snacks cause everybody's favourite host is back he knows the kingdom the phylum the class and the order it's Ben Johnson's taxonomy corner it's the kingdom phylum class Wait, so- order family oh sorry what, you have questions so you would go kingdom, it's an animal, then you would go phylum, phylum. it's a vertebrate, it's called arthur. It's a vertebrate animal. Cla- then you yep. would go class, it's a bird, and then we would go family, ducks, Anzera- or small No, birds. order first. So order is anzeriforms for order. ducks. Anzeriforms is ducks, geese, stuff like that. Right. Anzeriforms, and then family? Family, yeah, uh, for ducks, I, I, I'm not sure, I don't know. There are some lots of duck families. The mallard, the mallard family. family. I'm going to Google what the mallard family is. I'm not. I don't know all the families. Okay, there's a lot of them. Anatidae. Fuck, I knew that because Anas botchus. Yep. So different genuses contain you know humans and and chimpanzees. You know that we're in different genuses in the same family. That kind right. of stuff. And then right. different. Okay. And then within a genus, you have humans and Neanderthals stuff like that. So you know they're pretty similar on the whole. Cool. So there's lots of examples of intergeneric hybrids so there's lots of examples of human and chimpanzee babies not specifically but the equivalent of you know what (laughs) (laughs) no there are examples of animals which that's not lots of (laughs) examples of human and chimpanzee that's not allowed guys i mean there are lots of examples where animals that are as different as humans and chimpanzees according to the taxonomy have successfully bred not only that but to create fertile offspring right sam can i guess a type that has done this go ahead have bonobos have bonobos done this you're so close it's almost an anagram come on you can do you, uh, what's that baboon yeah, baboon yeah it's baboon, <laughs> baboon. No, but come on sam you know bonobos bonobos must have done it well because bonobos are just so sexual all the time that they they just no, cause the, you called them cheeky 
what did you call them? Cheeky bastards in the previous episode. Do I call bonobos cheeky bastards? I probably you called them those cheeky bastards because I said they kiss. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're like the only other animal who kiss. So you said those cheeky bastards. Yeah, they, 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 they yeah. probably also do. Bonobos are well. People often think that bonobos are a lot more like us because they're less sort of mean than chimps. You know, chimps will like rip each other's throats out, whereas bonobos will just have a lot of sex. The, when they when two rival bonobo tribes meet, where in chimps they would fight, in bonobos they just have an orgy. That's how they say hello. It's just it's oral sex. It's hello for them. That's their life. I don't know why more animals don't do that because that feels like a really great way to keep your species going as opposed to killing them. You know. That's a good point, but it's about your own genes at the end of the day, you know. But also, yeah. in these particular orgies, they don't discri- it's not not much gene flow is happening, you know, it's it's all for all, generally. <laughs> okay. But yeah, that's, okay. bonobo, that's bonobo life. And I'm actually, frankly, astounded that bonobos haven't hybridized with plenty of other species by now, based on their lifestyle. But, I, <laughs> but I'm talking about baboons, and I'm talking about baboons, which is the genus Papio, as you may know, um, and then Therapithecus. Which are, which are geladas. Do you know what geladas are, Henry? Geladas. Is that a type of Italian ice cream? I was gonna, I was gonna make that joke if you weren't. No, it isn't. <laughs> Gelada baboons, they are, they're basically, they're kind of like baboons, but they're from a much more ancient lineage. You know, they're, they're from these monkeys that used to be, they used to be much more prevalent across much of Europe. They used to be in like Spain and you'd have these like whole troops of these massive omega apes just roaming around on all fours in the mountains and they'd be quite cool. Yeah. They have these huge, yeah. huge tribes. They have these weird displays, which they're most famous for, where they, they, they curl back their lips and they show their teeth, and it's terrifying. It's absolutely terrifying. It's horrible. It's the worst thing an animal can do to my eyes. Google, Google gelato baboons display, and bloody hell. It's, it's, yeah. yeah, it's not nice at all. But there, that's, that's, How do that's, you spell it? Gelada. Gelada. G-E-L-A-D-A. Baboon. Display. It's, uh, they're, they're quite fashionable. They look like they're sort of. They look like they. they oh, these. They take oh God, yeah, no, no. I recognise these guys. These are like the scary baboons. These they're, are the ones. Yeah. Oh my God. But they're not baboons. Nah. They're not. They're not technically baboons. They are Therapithecus, which is different, very different, but not so different that they can't have sex with baboons and create successful offspring, which is quite cool. Um. So yeah, there's been lots of recorded instances of fertilisation between Therapithecus and Papio babies, and then those babies go on to make more babies. And interestingly, right. if you look at the, if you wait, yeah, don't write that. Wait, so you're saying inter interbreeding has produced fertile offspring? Yes, intergenous interbreeding has produced fertile offspring. Whereas previously, people thought that between, between even between species, it would never produce fertile offspring. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. um, that that produces fertile offspring, and there's evidence if you look in the genetic makeup of these uh, baboons and and Therapithecus, you can see the influence. You can see that you have these genes that have moved over from these species between genuses through hybridization in the past, and those hybrids even yep. being incorporated into populations, and you can see that mix up. You know, and that, and I'm gonna it, yeah. I'm I'm talking about this like this is an isolated event, but it happens in so many species. And for, here's an example that comes quite close to home. Water frogs. This is the part where it gets a bit messy. And it was already right. messy. It was already very messy. So, are you aware of the amphibians of the United Kingdom, Henry? Of our great, great isle? Uh, uh, sorry, say the name again? The, am- the amphibians of our great, great isle. You know what I mean. Frogs, salamanders, yeah. newts. Why did you mean? Oh, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. I am aware of... I have, I have picked some up, actually. What, like in bars? Yeah. Clubs? Yeah, yeah. Nice. 
Yeah. Well done. Well done. Pick up lines. Yeah, the fantastic. whole thing. Oh, classic. I like frogs. What can I say? Very. Yeah. I. I you could. You could. You can say nothing really. Uh, I also. I also like frogs. But the idea is, um, we have the common frog, Rana Temporania. We have we have toads and all that, and then we have water frogs such as pool frogs, edible frogs, marsh frogs. And as I was, as a budding herpetologist that I am, I tried to really nail the British amphibians before I, I broadened my net to, you know, other more interesting places. But I quickly sort of realized that the British frogs, it, this is in the genus Pelophylax specifically. So this is the pool frog, water frog, the edible frog. They're a real, real The mess. edible frog. The edible frog, yes. So That's such a shit name. Well, they were named in France, so I'm sure you can figure out why they're called edible frogs. <laughs> Not edible to me. This one, this one you can eat. They're only edible to me in a in a strictly sexual way, but 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 in France they're <laughs> edible in many ways. But yeah, uh, the yeah, I, yeah. the idea is pool frogs and marsh frogs had a baby, and that baby was an edible frog. Is what people have now realised. Right. So edible frogs are actually a hybrid between pool frogs and marsh frogs, and that makes people wonder: wait a second, why are there so many edible frogs then? Right, they can't be fertile. And then they actually looked into it and realised. They're not fertile. Only 3% of babies between two edible frogs actually create a new edible frog. So, wait a second. If edible frogs aren't fertile, and they're a hybrid between two things, how come they're one of the most common species of frog across the continent? What's happening here? How are, you, how are you making so many edible frogs? What, what is going on? And the answer lies in something called hybridogenesis. Which is... Ooh. It's really... It's kind of cool. So you've got the marsh frog and you've got your pool frog. And they have a baby. Now this baby, usually the problem is, right, they can't make a gamete because they're trying to mix the two genes and it's all, it's all messy. Right? That's the main issue. Right. In this case, actually, they don't bother with that. They just make a marsh frog gamete. So you have these hybrid frogs running around with sperm from only one of their parents. Nice. So that's a marsh frog. So, for example, if these two edible frogs were to mate together, they would make, in theory, they'd, in theory, they'd make a marsh frog. But that marsh frog doesn't doesn't tend to survive. But it's actually got the genetic makeup of a marsh frog. That's brilliant. So, in order to maintain the population, what they're what they're doing is you get a hybrid breeding with a pool frog. It's because the hybrid will have uh... the marsh. So, so, and the edible frog acts like a marsh frog because it has marsh frog sperm. I and assume this species has been going the... long enough that this is a like a thing that the, the the edible frogs choose like they they want to breed with marsh frogs, and they don't breed with pool. Yeah, frogs. well, pool frogs. So they pool want frogs. to breed with pool frogs, not marsh frogs, because they exactly have... yes. But couldn't they also breed with if they bred with a marsh frog? Would it just make a marsh frog? They, it would, but that one it just dies <laughs> during yes. gestation because of other reasons. But genetically, it would be a marsh frog. So they, so they, they only they can only make. Edible frogs, but they can only have sex with pool frogs. Yes. This yes. is brilliant. <laughs> That's like only making human babies by having sex with chimpanzees. Exactly. And if you had a sex with a human, it would just it would become a gorilla, but it would die immediately. <laughs> <laughs> it's like it's really messed up. Let's go genetics. <laughs> Let's go genetics. And it means that they have to like it's called back crossing where the hybrid has to bring with pool frogs, and it's really messed up. And it means that if you're in the field, you essentially can't tell the difference between any of the hybrids, and it's a complete, complete shit show. And in, in Britain, actually, we're trying to reintroduce pool frogs, which makes it much more confusing, because we already have edible frogs and marsh frogs. 
So from a conservation perspective, it's like, what do we do? Do we bother? I mean, they're kind of the same anyway. No, we should bother. We should get some shit over from Sweden, and we should put them in Thompson Common. Oh, wait, no, they've bred with edible frogs, and now it's just edible frogs. Is this, is this good? Is this what we wanted? No, it's not what we wanted. Call the edible frogs. Get made more, it's so confusing. No one knows what they want, and no one knows what to do, because they're all just having sex with each other. Wow. Wait, so the edible frogs kind of isn't a species. It's a combination of marsh frogs and pool frogs. Well, that's the thing. A lot of people would say, it's not a species, it's a hybrid, blah, blah, blah. But the thing is, it does have a Latin name. Ooh. And if you look a little closely, a lot of species which we thought were species are actually just hybrids that do this kind That's of thing. That's so sick. Well, this is, a great, this, is a great, this is a great fun fact that you can bring up at dinner in, in, in Paris about edible frogs. And I kind of have one more thing to say as well. I have one more thing to say, which is my favourite part. Oh, fuck yeah. And I think... This is probably the dumbest thing that has ever evolved. <laughs> Bro, we've had a lot of dumb animals on this podcast in the past. Uh, no, this is genuinely What about that really worm dumb. that can be chopped into 280 pieces and still be alive? <laughs> no, no, no. no that, that's great. That's useful, isn't it? No one's arguing that's dumb. No one's arguing that you... If I could tell you that that would happen to you, you would want that, right? That's a good thing to happen. I can make 280 clones of me. <laughs> yeah that's what you want yeah when you bite your fingernails you know you just get grow a new henry in your mouth yeah like that, that, that that's what that that's by no means dumb this is stupid this is worse than than what we could this gives me faith in that evolution exists because there's no way god would make something this right stupid. let's go let's go guys <laughs> it's just really let's stupid. go I, it's called gynogenesis right, right. <laughs> so the idea so there's this whole conflict, particularly resonant in fish, where it's like, am I asexual? Am I sexual? And, you know, do I reproduce asexually, which is cloning myself, pathogenesis? A lot of advantages to this, you know. Your babies are exactly like you. So Darwin's happy, you know, fully nice. transmitted genes. But you might have diseases. You might be susceptible to pandemics when they all wipe yeah, out yeah. the same people. You know, that, there's less diversity. But it doesn't mean you can make loads more babies. You don't need yeah. to find a mate which is really great. That's really useful for a fish. Loads of advantages to asexual yeah. reproduction. And on the other side of the coin, loads of advantages to sexual reproduction. You know, you, you get to have diversity, you get to have all this great stuff. Now, gynogenesis is literally the worst of both worlds. Right. So gynogenesis... Is it gynogenesis? G-Y-N-O-genesis. Like gynecology. Like I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, kind of like gynecology. But it's, <laughs> the reason it's weird is that you you have to go and find a mate, which is the hard part of sexual reproduction. You have to go and find a mate, and then they have to do the whole courtship display, and then they have to get get it real close, and they have to do the special cuddle. And then their sperm goes towards your egg, and it starts going out the tube. It's about to get to your fish egg. It's going all the way there, and the second before it touches the egg, it dies. The sperm dies. <laughs> but once the sperm's dead, the egg is, the egg is triggered to clone itself. <laughs> so... So they basically wait until they've had sex, get rid of the sperm, and then just clone themselves. Basically. God, that is like the most emasculating thing that could possibly happen. To you. <laughs> yeah, I know. Oh, it's horrible. Yeah, it's so weird. Like you, I'm having children, <laughs> and then it comes out and it's the exact clone of your wife. Wow. It's like, oh, is it triggered by like, a, like, the scent of a dead sperm? What what triggers it? Is there like a chemical thing just, inside, or would like a dildo set it off? No, a, a fish. Uh, that's an experiment I would be willing to carry out, to be honest. But I, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it is. It is chemicals released from a dead sperm that 
trigger the egg to undergo parthenogenesis on its own, which it could have done without the sperm. Yeah, yeah, that's just very cringe. It's very cringe. It's a com- essentially an unsolved problem. That sexually triggered asexual reproduction <laughs> yeah. is what it is. Yes, yes. <laughs> it's really bad. I don't Erogenous asexual reproduction. The theory yeah. is like, may- you can see how it happened as well. You can just see how it happened. But where a sexually reproducing fish one day made it a bit too difficult and the sperm kept dying. So they were forced to do parthenogenesis. You can see that that coming out through evolution just through a sort of mistake are they all females then yeah no any parthenogenic species only produces females essentially yeah but the females must have a dick then i think what oh oh is it another species which is so the amazon amazon molly is a posila formosa they require they they have to have sex with another species called posila latpina and then that triggers them to clone themselves reproduce asexually you're right yeah so God, it's it's, it's like a hybrid a we've come all the way back around it's kind of hybridization so, it's... so i'm just imagining these really chad <laughs> different species of fish They're like all right come on guys it's time to start having babies exactly it's like and they just go over there and they they trigger them all it's like you want to clone yourself but you can't until you've had sex with a chimpanzee then you can clone yourself <laughs> God, the ape version of this is makes it so much weirder it does. It does make it weirder. Well, yeah. I Sam, mean, it's a good. Are we, are we wrapping this up now. I think we can wrap this this good this fact up. We can wrap this up now. Great. Cool. We can wrap it up now, Sam. Oh, we didn't do an outro. Oh, whatever. I'll just cut it off after one thing. I'll find a good end. Sam. Hi guys. Saliva, ball, and string. So, what is that? What are those words? What are those words? Well, if you lick your finger, spit on your finger, uh-huh. do it. Spit Ew, on your finger. I've done it. All right. All right. Pull the two fingers apart. We might have talked about this before. I have no idea. I can see. I don't think this we is have. so gross. I don't think we have. Whoa, dude. Have you not? I've told you to do this before. It makes... Wait. Yeah. It makes balls on a string. But does, the string has it? to be very thin. So if you put too much saliva on your fingers, then it won't work. Anyway. Oh. Uh, why does that happen? Well, it's because saliva is something known as a viscoelastic fluid. Um, it's a type of non-Newtonian fluid where you've basically got a combination of solid and liquid properties working at the same time. Um, just I behave, thought non-Newtonian like, fluids. I thought they they were like became solid when you like punch them. You know. Yeah, I know. Like when I'm chewing, when I'm chewing, my mouth doesn't just go solid. Yeah, because there's different types of non-Newtonian fluids. Oh, I see. Right. Would a Newtonian fluid form balls on a string? So non-Newtonian fluid just means a fluid that behaves in any weird way. Yeah, I guess, in a non-Newtonian way. <laughs> right, this makes sense. Yeah, I'm fine. I assume, I assume this guy, <laughs> Isaac Newton, at one point went, this is a Newtonian fluid. Why? Because it follows my rules for fluids. And fluids should do this, and this is how a fluid should be. And then everything else, fuck that, doesn't exist. That's not does. Newtonian. That's Isaac. So I suppose I was going to talk about why that is the case. Saliva is 99.5% water, which leaves very little room for anything else. But in that anything else, there's a lot of there's a lot of different things. It's kind of like air in that it's mostly nitrogen, oxygen, and then like 1% anything else. But in that anything else, there's a lot of stuff. Um, so there's proteins, as one would expect. There's We talked about this in previous episodes. There's like nerve growth factor. There's painkillers there's 
there's Ooh. antitoxins, there's you know Ooh, yeah. all sorts. There's all sorts in there. But we're mostly talking about proteins. Why? Because proteins are kind of they are polymers. They're polymers of amino acids. Yep. So although usually they sort of look at it like a ball because they're all scrunched up, um, you can kind of imagine them as long strings. And we're going to be talking about them in long string ways. Okay. Sure. And now we get on to the main problem with this fact of why <laughs> balls appear on strings. And that is, and to quote, uh, formation of beads on a string structures during breakup of viscoelastic filaments by Pradipibat, Santosh, I'm not going to read it. Michael T. Harris, Matteo Pascali, Gareth McKinley, Osman Basaran. Oh, you are right? going to read them all. A lot of big uh-huh. guys. Santosh Apathuraj. There we go. Um, these guys wrote a paper, and to quote them, as I was saying, the underlying physics remains unclear and controversial. Wow. So that's that surprises me a great deal. But but. But apparently there's a general agreement that the formation of such beads on a string structures only occurs for viscoelastic fluids. It does seem quite simple, though. I, I, I've i always... See, you, you've been bringing this up for pushing two years now. And you keep you keep <laughs> thinking it's interesting. I can't get it right. It is <laughs> interesting. Not, Why I, does it happen? I, I, can't, a, I still don't know. It just seems kind of intuitive. Okay, so here's my okay, two how? words on the matter. You know how raindrops, <laughs> ra- raindrops, drops of water in a vacuum, they form spheres. Drops form spheres naturally. That's not a surprise, because they want the smaller surface area. So a drop of water will form a sphere if it's not constrained by anything. Gra- balls explained. Round the string. Now, not, now onto the string. So you've already explained that saliva has some sort of mucosins in it, right? Proteins that build up mucus. That's from your sinuses and stuff like that. And that, that, that's like made of proteins and that helps stick stuff together. So the, all the, all the water adheres to this sort of string of mucus. But the thing is, it's not very strongly adhered to it. So it can also gather up into balls because it's a smaller surface area shape. Why is that not the answer? That's just it, isn't it? I've never understood why that doesn't work. <laughs> why has no one said this? <laughs> I don't know. I've never bothered to look it up. It doesn't <laughs> seem interesting. That's just why I assumed happened. Look it up, man. I need help. <laughs> not... <laughs> but, but water goes into balls anyway. Like, if it can, it will do that. But it doesn't have the string, Sam. It's a ball and string. But the string That's is the mucus. It's a, bo- it's 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 a, a B-A-O-N. Of, it's a string of saliva. It's like a string of cheese or a string of snot or a string of anything. It's all the same. It's just sticky, sticky, sticky liquids folding under gravity, making a string, stretching themselves out. Slightly attached, but not really. Okay, I raise you one. I raise you one. Sam, what about honey? What happens with honey? It doesn't contain enough water. Honey's not mostly water, is it? Honey's, like, much more viscous. Okay, so you're saying the percentage of water affects the ball and stringness. No, not really. I'm saying saliva is water with some stringy things in it. It's a mixture. Honey's not a... M- well, I guess it is a mixture. <laughs> it's not like honey's an elemental form of liquid. But, like, honey... <laughs> elemental honey. Uh, you know what? You've made a pretty good point, but I don't think honey has a high enough... Water content. There you go. Do you want to look at this article which says tips for managing thick saliva? <laughs> I, 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 I have no, no comment. I plead the fifth. <laughs> right. Saliva, ball and string theory? God, I just gave you my best one. Yeah, I know. And uh, there's it. I, I, I trust you, Sam, a lot. But like, I feel like I can't trust you enough to preach it to everyone else. No, they, don't preach it because I did... I did conclusively make that up on the spot 
but also <laughs> I feel like I don't have a good sense of answering questions, but I feel like I have a good sense of knowing when a question's going to have an interesting answer. And this one, I have never felt that it does. <laughs> I'm. You know how I feel about this one. You know I think it's. I do. You wanted to make a document. No joke. He wanted to make a documentary about this. <laughs> no word of a lie. Why? Why does it do a ball and string? I'm fucking gonna You're, die. It's so in this awkward question, to explain Sam. as well. I die before it's so I find like out the answer. Clunky and bad to explain to people because you have to make them lick their fingers. It's gross. Like even even at the best, even at its best, the effect yeah. isn't that good. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, spit Guys, on your you hands. That disgusting mucusy spit. Just really work it up in your mouth and get it all over your fingers and then just like squelch them mm. together for a bit. Mm, isn't that cool? Mm. How it's slightly stringy and bally. And like what? <laughs> it's like, well, no one knows why. What are you doing? What are you, what are doing? you doing? What are you doing, man? <gasps> the naked scientist. <laughs> no, wait, what? <laughs> that other podcast, Sam. Wait, they've made. Yes, they have a theory. They've explained it. Are you serious? They've explained. <laughs> Fucking serious. Spit is mostly water. Apparently, it's full of long, thin, string-like protein molecules which tangle with one another, making the liquid slightly thicker, helps it lubricate. When you stretch out the liquid, because, okay, what do we need? Saliva is a glob, right? If you put it under tension, it does ball and string, but not under tension, it doesn't do ball and string. And it can't be touching anything else because its surface needs to be entirely surface tension, right? Okay. Let's look at this scientifically, right? So, clearly... When we're putting it under tension, that's when the mechanism happens. Right. When you stretch it out, what it does is it pulls the protein molecules, like it stretches them out as well. So they go to full extension, I guess. Right. I know that's really cringe, but, you know, this is the best we've got. We've got fake science <laughs> or no science, guys. <laughs> it, it is. It is. <laughs> so basically, if you get a tiny little slight curvature in the surface of the string... Anywhere along the string, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Then what will surface tension will do is it's like a chain reaction. The more curvature you have, the greater inwards facing force you have. That's like a mechanism of surface tension. The greater inwards pressure you have, right? Which is why, as Sam keeps shouting in my ear, they will always tend <laughs> towards bulls, right? So what you end up with is the middle of the string it has a tiny little bit of curvature will tend towards a ball like shape yes and that's what happens you end up with a ball on a string and the proteins actually don't really sustain the ball it's the water around the proteins that create the ball but the proteins stabilize the ball by having a string of proteins that goes it down the center of the ball yeah which the the water is just on the string so and then because the water is on the string it forms balls because it does so that. sam as you might have previously mentioned. <laughs> it's a string of mucus with a water ball Wee, on it. Yay! Woo! That's so many years of my life. <laughs> Woo, we did it! And now I'm never going to think about it again. No. Because it's just ruined for it's me. It's just bad. Until, <laughs> until, until I tell you this, Sam. Okay. How come the naked scientist has worked it out so easily, but what is his name? Michael T. Harris and Santosh Apurthaj haven't worked it out yet. Well, the problem is, is because even when you use computations, 
right? Mm-hmm. With numerical simulations because it's fluid dynamics. So you actually can't get a right answer. You just need to do a Taylor series that adds lots and lots of little bits of it. So you're almost right. Yep. Whatever. Um, computations reveal that the viscoelasticity, which is the solid liquid property of it, does not give rise to small satellite beads, which are often found between the two much larger beads. Whoa. So it's saying that the water migrates to larger beads. We, we, we know this, right? Because it needs to create that curvature. So you end, you end up with this sort of stretching, contracting force that makes a ball on a string, which I was so confused about. Um, anyway, you, what you end up when you actually spit on your fingers... <laughs> I want you guys to spit on your face. <laughs> it's small satellite beads between the larger beads. Right? Uh, is this what's interesting now? And it's saying the inertia required for this formation is not a... It doesn't exist, apparently. Um, however, you do see it. Um, and it also says the viscoelasticity, however, enhances the growth of the bead and delays pinch-off, which leads to a relatively long-lived beaded structure. So not only do you have these satellite beads, but you also end up with a system which supports these satellite beads. But no one really knows how. And then it also says, we have also shown for the first time, theoretically, theoretically, it's theoretical physics, that yet smaller sub-satellite, sub-satellite beads can also form. Christ. Which is also seen in experiments. Get on it, boffins. Right. Awesome. You know how I googled sellotape earlier? I do. Oh, we're going to go straight into this. Oh, I like this. It sounded like I shat my pants. Oh no! But, well, no, you sounded really happy, so I, I'm not sure. It's, it sounded like you just unshat your pants, kind of. Unshat my pants. <gasps> it sounded like you thought there was shit in your pants, and you looked down, and it was chocolate. Yeah, exactly. A great feeling. Obviously. You were really, you're really happy. You were really happy. <laughs> He's at a low point today because right. we looked at our podcast stats, and that always makes us a little <laughs> bit. Makes but us bad. We, makes us that for like a like, solid evening, and then we yeah. uh, brought it right back up by googling sellotape. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> sellotape is a viscoelastic solid. Solid? It's sure. a viscoelastic, it's a non-Newtonian fluid. Sellotape is a non-Newtonian fluid. <laughs> because it doesn't behave like a fluid. And it's one of the key reasons for why it's sticky is because it's a non-Newtonian fluid. It's not a non-Newtonian fluid. And it is a non-Newtonian fluid. Viscous materials, like water, right? Okay. Resist yeah. shear flow, right? And strain linearly with time when stress is applied, right? But it's a solid. Sellotape's a solid. But but elastic materials are not time dependent. Okay. So often you another part of it's like it's a it's a non solid, non liquid thing. Anyway, sellotape's elastic. We know this. It's kind of stretchy, right? You put it on, yeah. the non elastic, viscous property of the sellotape seeps into tiny little gaps in the surface of the thing you're sticking together. True fact. True. So, so, fact. so coated on the sellotape, there's like a sort of sticky, I guess it's a liquid, like a paste, which they've put on the plastic, and that's the part that's sticky. Uh. Which I, I would guess that to be true. Like, sellotape itself is not a fluid, but I, I'm guessing the, the glue they've put on it is, right? Is sellotape itself. No, it is. I could throw some at you and it would hurt. Like, it's not a fluid. Polypropylene based. Pressure-sensitive tape. Pressure-sensitive tape. Pressure-sensitive tape. Uh, <laughs> what am I saying? What if there were balls on strings on sellotape? We're back. <laughs> balls on strings on... So you mean using the fluid of sellotape to create balls and strings? Is this what you you're know saying? what? I'd like to create artificial balls and strings. 
in my kitchen. I bet you could use glue. I bet Prit... No, not Prit stick. Prit stick will make strings. If you get Prit stick wet, I bet wet Prit stick. This, this feels controversial, but I reckon <laughs> wet Prit stick would make balls and strings. It's not that simple, Sam. It can't be. I bet it is that simple. It... <sighs> okay. I bet snot does it. <laughs> no, I haven't got a video camera on, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't, I don't, but I, I bet it oh, does. It fucking does, man. <laughs> oh, nice. Okay, <laughs> cool. That's the PhD sorted. <laughs> one of you guys can wrap that one up. I'm not putting that under my name, but I would read it for sure. <laughs> Hi, Sam. Hi, Henry. Moths. 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 Exactly. <clears throat> moths. Yeah, moths. 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 Enter, enter moth mode. They're butterflies that sit differently when they land. Okay. Okay, we're going to start, start start there. No, uh, yeah, kind of. So they, they traditionally sit with their wings sort of parallel to their back. You know, they sit like with their wings behind them. But butterflies sit with their wings perpendicular to their back, like, you know, pointed up behind it. You can just imagine that, really. Also, yeah. moths have big fluffy antennae. They're nocturnal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's loads of loads of classic ways of of telling moth from butterfly, but in the end, they're all lepidopterans, really, and no one really particularly minds. But I think moths are a lot cooler than butterflies. You know, there are there are plenty of good. I mean, we've had butterfly facts on the podcast before. We have, you know, hearts in their wings. Hearts in their wings. I may or may not have mentioned. Um, butterfly structural pigmentation before, but if not, it we have we did a whole point. section on that in the last one we as did. well. Lovely. Well, I think moths are better than that because moths. Well, I I think they're just brown though, aren't they? No, no. Look up like you know moon moths, atlas moths. All right, Plenty all of right. sexy moths out there. Plenty of sexy moths out there. But the, the the reason that they're particularly sexy, I think, is because I mean, that they have a lot. They have a harder life than butterflies. Butterflies go around. And occasionally things will eat them, but generally they're, they're, they're pretty safe. Moths, on the other hand, they are at the mercy of probably the most diverse, abundant group of mammals on the planet. Bats are everywhere, essentially on every continent, in every environment. And really their mission in life is to just rid the world of moths. And likewise, moths would like to rid the world of bats. So that there's been a long... Moths are killing bats? No, I'm, but I'm sure they'd like to rid the world of bats. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if they had the option... Um, Bat or no bat. If they had the option, bat or no bat, they would be there. No bat every time, <laughs> undoubtedly, I think. But 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 there's been a long arms race between moths attempting not to get eaten by bats, bats attempting to eat the moths anyway. You know, which hasn't really happened with butterflies. And, and you look at a moth and you think, sure, arms race. They look a bit boring. But like this arms race mostly takes place in the audio world, mm. far above the frequencies that we can hear. And there's all sorts of cool things that moths have done with sound, and the bats have done with sound, and the moths have done with sound in order to try and trick each other. This is secretly a physics one. Secretly? I mean, yes, yes. This is secretly a physics one. So I assume you all know that bats do echolocation, because that's that's very well. Sperm whales do echolocation. A lot of things do echolocation. Um, And it's just the idea that they emit sound, very high-frequency sound, in little, little bursts, like beep, 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 almost like that, like radar. And it bounces off certain objects and comes back to them. And depending on how the beeps have changed or where the beeps are bouncing from, bats can take the information they're getting from the sound and they can triangulate where the moth must be. They can find it just by bouncing sound off of them. 
right? That's how, that's how echolocation works. Now, moths, first of all, they evolved a system, plenty of systems to try and avoid echolocation. For example, they fly in really weird ways, but at the end of the day, that doesn't really help because bats are really good at finding moths. So what they, what they could also do is they've done this thing called echolocation jamming or sonar jamming. They, they respond to it. Yeah. So you know how during in human radio you can make signals, these signals that jam radios, yeah, by by producing these really high sounds where you can't you can't actually get the information from them anymore because they clutter them up. That's what moths do. So moths actually essentially make their own beeps to confuse bats. So if you're if you're trying to bounce sound off something, but that's making its own sound, it's kind of hard to tell what's your sound and what's its yeah. sound. You know, so it's it's really confusing the bats. Bats don't really know if there's a moth really far away or if it's really close or if there are loads of moths or if it's just the moths making their own noise. So moths have confused bats by imitating bats' echolocation beeps. Yeah, uh, and that that's called echolocation jamming. And that's there's a lot of a lot of cases of like moths evolving this and bats evolving counter jamming measures and involving even more complex calls and even more complex beeps. And moths doing the same and going back and forth. It's kind of like throwing your voice a bit because the moth can send back signals that make it seem like it's flying in a different direction from the direction it's flying, and that it's in a different position from the position it's in. Yes, because the bat the bat tells the position from the time difference between when it sends the original message and when it receives the message. Yes, and it gets the velocity from the Doppler shifted pitch difference of the sound. Yes, but one one cool thing that they do, which you you can try yourself, you know, uh, depending on circumstances, is if you see a bunch of moths flying around your light. That's what they t- they tend to do. That moths love lights, and a bunch of moths flying around your light. If you get some keys. And you go up to the moths and you jangle all the keys around the moths. The moths will, like that, go stock still and they'll fall to the ground and they'll go clunk. Well, they also scream at the keys. Well, you, you won't be able to hear the scream, but they might scream at the keys. And the idea is when you jingle your keys, you're making a lot of high-pitched noises, but you're also making a lot of noises that we can't hear. Those noises sound kind of like bats. So one of the best ways that moths can get away from bats is just to stop flying so they can fall down. It's a really quick way of moving if you're a moth unpredictably as well so just turn your wings off as it were wow dive bomb and just <laughs> cut the engine you know, cut the engine for a while and then go back essentially so yeah moths are cutting the engine evasive maneuvers can you jangle your keys they fall down and you can smack them yeah or you all feed them to the bats you know or feed them to your pet bat yeah <sighs> although i must say human relations with bats have decreased in the last three or so years that's true. Tensions are quite high, as far as I understand. <laughs> I'd be surprised if you had a pet but, bat. Yeah. Sam, why do moths like lights in the first place? You say they're flying around a lamp. Ah, well, there's a lot of... God, there's a lot of theories about that. Okay. There is an answer. I can't quite remember which one Which one is the correct answer. I remember the, the old theory is that it's the moon. The moon? They try and organise themselves, so they, they're going with a certain direction towards the moon. And when they see a light, they think, I need to sort of align myself in a certain direction towards that light, which means they end up circling around it. Does that mean they will have no interest in your lights if they're turned on during the day, even if it's darker than the surrounding... No, in the day, they're, they're just sort of asleep. Uh... But So imagine you're trying to fly in a straight direction. You want the moon to be on your right. So you're like, I'm flying straight. The moon's on my right. This is good. I'm doing, I'm doing moth things. Right? So that, that's how they orientate themselves. Now imagine that the moon is actually a light... Well, if you fly straight, the, the light goes away. If you want to keep the light on your right, you have to fly in a circle. Circle the moon, get tired. They're like, I'll just chill for a bit. Then they start flying again. They're like, oh shit, the moon's there. I've got to turn again. 
Yeah, exactly. And their brains aren't large enough to notice that this is... Yeah, they're accustomed to believe that you can fly in a straight line and the moon will stay in the same place. So that, that's one of the reasons that they circle lights. That's crazy. And if, if you think about it, light bulbs have only been around for 100 years. So, you know, their behavior is not going to change since the invention of a light. No, that's true. That's true. There's candles as well. Or, or I mean, candles and lighting systems. What is that? 3,000 years, we'll say? Four th- There's plenty of room for them to have evolved to stay away from lights, I think. Okay. But they're just not doing that. Yeah, it hasn't done them much harm. But there will be a stark drop-off of moth populations after the invention of keys. Mark my words. <laughs> That's true. That's probably true. You just pick them up off the floor, you know, straight into the mouth. <laughs> it makes moth harvesting a lot easier. But uh, I have one more thing I want to talk about with maths. Like, moth, not maths. We did maths. This is moths. The one more bit is to do with the Asian corn borer moth, um, as well as other moths like it. Right. That is actually my favorite moth. I know, they're, they're great. They're really boring, that corn, like no one's business. But uh, one thing that they do, so let's yeah. say you're a moth and you're on a leaf, and suddenly you hear a bat. What's the best course of action? Oh, shit. What's the best course of action for you Shit your do? pants. Obviously, you, sh- you shit you your moth pants. Cut, shit your pants, shit your moth cut pants. the engine. Well, you're on a leaf, you're sitting on a leaf. You're sitting on you're a leaf. You're a corn borer moth, you're on some um, corn. You're doing some boring. Get inside the corn. Get inside the corn. No. Pretend to be some corn. Yes, you pretend to be some uh, corn. Essentially, it's you treat you treat a bat very much in the same way you treat a T Rex. You don't move. A bat's echolocation really kind of relies on you moving. I swear the T Rex thing's a myth, though. Oh, yeah, they're just going to see you standing there, and they're just going to be like, "Bro, my eyes are so much better than yours." You think I'm a fucking? <laughs> it's going to eat you. <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's gonna eat you. you think I'm dumb. <laughs> yeah, like the whole Jurassic Park thing. It'd be much shorter movie series if it was like the guy stands completely still in front of the T Rex, and it just there's no reason off. for a T Rex to have such a blaring predatory like downside <laughs> as not being able to see your prey when it stands still. <laughs> like, what kind of fucking evolution would bring that about? I think. I mean, <laughs> you are twelve meters long. You weigh six tons. You have 30 or 40 razor-sharp teeth that can crush through bone. You have binocular eyes that can see up to a kilometre away. You have this smell that can pick up the faintest trace of prey excretion. But if they stand still, <laughs> fuck me. <laughs> Whichever I think the line idea there. is that like, if it came from the idea that predators often can't focus on something that's really close in front of their eyes. But um, I think that doesn't really apply to the old T-Rex. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I mean, it does apply, however, to the to the bat. Luckily, because um, if you're if if you're a bat and you detect some echolocation on a leaf, you're just going to think it's a bit of leaf. You're not going to think it's a moth. It's just it's just a bit. You're of like, leaf. wow, that's that's corn. Yeah, that's yeah. some more corn. No, no big deal. So moths, they want to stand still. When a bat detects you and you're on a leaf, you stand still, right? So, the, let's say you're a male moth, right, and you're looking for a woman moth, but the problem is they all just keep they just keep flying away. You know, every time you get close, the moth just flies away, and you don't get a chance to say your piece. Damn it! And then make baby, make babies. Just flies away every time. So, what, what's the best course of action for you as a male moth? Right? What do you do, Henry? Fly fast. <laughs> no, no. You wanna? What you do is you make a sound like a bat, and then they fucking like a bat. That's so creepy. So the male moths make a bat call. They mimic bat noises. The female moth freezes, thinking she's about to become bat food, 
and then the, and then it's just a male moth who starts humping it. <laughs> we do not condone the, the action the, of these moths. The life of the Asian corn borer moth is not one of glory. It must be said, but no. I but I but I think mm. it's quite smart in a depraved sort of way. Why did none of the females want to have babies? <laughs> I know, right? It feels like a bad evolutionary trait. <laughs> well, no, but like, you know, a lot of species would go wrong if the only way to have, you know, to procreate was by no, sexual know, but assault. It, no, but you know, I don't think the females can afford to mate with every moth who comes their path. You know, they don't want to, they want to be picky. They want to be choosy. Oh, I get it now. Yes, but also there is there is kind of an incentive for a female moth to pick the male moths who are best at tricking them. Because then their kids will be more likely to trick females and have babies with them. Aha, you got me. That was you know. some good sexual assault. That means my kids are going to be even better at sexual assault. Yeah, yeah. It's basically. a vicious cycle. It's a vicious cycle. That's the idea. It's not a system you want to be part of, but it's a system you can't escape. <laughs> Is that everything? Yeah, that's my, that's my moth rant done for now. All right. Uh, but, uh, you know. All right, cool. Arms race between bats and moths. It's quite, it's quite the thing. Yeah. Hi Sam. Hi Henry. Uh, what I'm going to be talking about today is more biology, which I'm a bit peeved off Woo-hoo! about, but uh, it's just how it is, you know. Um, I'm going to be talking about how certain cells move around the body. How, do, how does a white blood cell uh, find another cell in the bloodstream and decide that it's going to eat it? Um, because that's a really accurate localized movement um, and it has to be reasonably quick at it because that cell could drift off to a different place. Uh, do you know about this? Uh, only, only, yeah, I mean a little bit. Uh, okay, so right, white blood cells use uh, the shape of their cell uh, in a sort of breast-like motion. They they cause sort of certain contractions, and they also use paddle-like proteins, which they circulate like escalators around the outside of their cell wall. Whoa! Um, bringing bringing the paddle from the front of the cell to the back of the cell, bringing it back inside the cell, and then transporting it back up to the front of the cell inside the cell, and then sticking that protein out again, and it acts as a paddle again. Um, obviously, we know that bacteria use flagellum, which are whip-like appendages, um, and red blood cells. Interestingly, red blood cells they move with the rest of the bloodstream, right? So yeah. it seems like they they're not moving themselves; they're just getting carried along with the the ride with the rest of the juice that's going around your heart, right? <laughs> yeah, but but they do they do have to move past each other, and so they do require their own sort of wiggling technique. Um, can I just say? Can we just can we just appreciate that none of these things have muscles? So these are all like micro muscles. It's what one protein is doing a movement, which I thought was a really cool thing. Because at this level, right. okay. the things causing the movement is a chemical or a physical electrostatic attraction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and red blood cells sort of vibrate and wiggle around so that they don't get stuck on anything. Um, they vibrate. Yeah, in a weird way. I'll tell okay. you more about that. Okay. Um, a guy called, what's his name? Timo Betts, a biophysicist, used optical tweezers, which Sam knows about. Optical tweezers is like, it's a way of moving an object using a laser light. Is that a nice way of putting it, Sam? Yeah, but it doesn't capture how cool they are. I, I really like optical tweezers. They're, they're like, it's it like. Uses, it uses the momentum of the photons to uh, uh, move a physical object. Yeah, it's tweezers made so, of light. They're tweezers made of light. 
Yeah, so it's really useful for really, really small objects because you can be very precise with what you're moving it. So this guy, Timo Betts, a biophysicist at Munster University, he used optical tweezers to move different parts of a red blood cell. Um, and he noticed that the blood cell could kind of react in an almost sentient way to the movement of this object inside this optical tweezer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess I never really wondered how the how they move, that literally what powers them, you know. Yeah. So it's paddle paddles and breaststroke. Paddles and breaststroke. <laughs> It's brilliant. That's brilliant. That's I mean, the genius. way they found this out, they were like, okay, maybe it's this paddle-like thing. Oh, but they move a lot faster than you would feasibly be able to if you only had these physical paddles. So they have to have these other processes. It's one of those cool bits where you see something happening and then the logical explanation you realize is way too little of an effect to explain the whole process of how they move. Yeah. We'll leave it at that. I want to talk about something I saw in the news recently, which was a woman who could smell Parkinson's, right? Right. So, like, you know those dogs? So, I know this happens with dogs. I know there are dogs that that sort of go up to someone and sniff them, and then they know they have cancer. Ouch. It's pretty ouch, actually. There are these horrible stories of, like, grandma coming over for Christmas, and then... Oh, Spot Spotty's being really friendly with Grandma this this year. I wonder, I wonder why Spotty's. And then they realised it was because Grandma had cancer, and Spotty knew all along. <laughs> cancer smells like bacon to Spotty. Potentially, or just you know, an interesting new smell. But I didn't know it could happen with people. Yeah. So this, That's... my story starts with Les. I think is the name of the woman. <laughs> all good stories start with Les. <laughs> No, sorry. Les is the name of the man. Joy is the name of the woman. We're starting with Les and Joy, a happily married couple, right? Apparently they met in high school. Les was a 17-year-old swimmer and Joy was a 16-year-old new transfer. Sus. She remembers dancing with him at a party and being struck by his wonderful smell. That's horrible. Joy is Joy's a bit weird. She has a, she has a condition that means she smells really well, right? She's got a really great sense of smell. So, like, I feel like if you could smell as well as she could, you would be a bit creepy, too. That's true. Being like, bro, you smell great. Because smell would obviously be a bigger part of your brain. I think I'd rather receive, like, insults about my smell than compliments about my smell. You know, that, 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 would, that would seem creepier to me. Nah, I'm, 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 I'm better with compliments. <laughs> yeah, you're happy with compliments. He had a lovely, he had a lovely male musk smell. He really oh. did, she recalls. Everything about Les appealed to Joy. Mostly the smell, though. He was very thoughtful and generally quiet, but he had a wicked sense of humour. After college, they got married and set off happily ever after. Les became a doctor, Joy became a nurse, and they had three boys. Joy says that as a couple, they were so easy together. They rarely fought. We disagreed about things now and again, but we didn't fight fight. Her life with her Les, as she calls him, was everything Joy had hoped for. Okay. When Les was 31, happily married, he came home and strangely Joy thought he smells different, right? Okay. She says the usual sort of pheromone-based smell that Les has has now altered to a new musky sort of damp smell, right? So he started smelling different. And then I think a few years later, as with most neurodegenerative diseases, it takes a while to set in. um, 
he began to change his personality, his character. He became more moody, he became less tolerant. And then eventually, I think they're in their 40s at this point, so this is like 10 years later, he had a violent nightmare-like episode where he wasn't fully in control, but he was like thrashing around in bed and whatnot. And I think it was during a nightmare. I'm not really sure how this works. But clearly there was some big event which she was like, what the fuck? Something's wrong with your brain. Um, I'm going to take you to the doctors now because you might have a brain tumor, right? Okay, he still okay. smells this weird musky smell. I assume she just got used to it at this point. So she takes him into the appointment. And the doctor goes, you might have Parkinson's because I'm a doctor and I know these things. So they go to the Parkinson's department. They arrive slightly late and it's really busy. And the first thing Joy thinks of when she arrives is, Boah, this entire place smells this weird, musty smell. And she said different patients smelt different strengths of this weird, musty smell as she went in. Um, and she said everyone in the clinic smelled like her husband. Right. Oh, no. End of the story. She goes, hey, doctor, I think these people smell like Parkinson's. They go, wow, that's really fascinating. Aren't you also diagnosed with this super smelling thing? She goes, yeah. They go, wouldn't you like to come in and we can do a couple tests on this? You know, long story short, then it's now a paper, right? There's a paper with people testing Joy's ability to smell Parkinson's, right? Mm -hmm. So they got a group of 43 people who have Parkinson's disease and 21 people who didn't have Parkinson's disease. And they took non-invasive uh, sebum samples from their backs. Because this is their theory. They have a, I'll explain the theory later. But they have a theory that the sebum in the back is one of the places where you can produce this smell if you've got Parkinson's, right? Uh, it, was, it was backs and like, you know, armpit. Different parts of the body. Different erogenous zones. Is that the right term? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> That feels wrong. <laughs> that feels wrong. <laughs> no, 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 it's not the right, it's not the no, right time. No, 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 no. I'm editing this shit. <laughs> you know, back, armpits, all the, all the major Rogers. Different, what's smelly zones? What's the term for smelly <laughs> I zones? I don't even know. I don't know. Smelly, smelly zones, zones, medical term. I think it's just, I don't know. Smelly z- It's sexual stimulation. Sensitivity to sexual stimulation is. Yeah, it? that's an erogenous zone, yeah. Uh. Wow, why is everything related to sexual? We, we all know what you mean. We all know what you mean. Everyone here knows what you mean. Yeah, but I wanna, I'm look, I wanna find a term now because I wanna <laughs> show that I was in fact thinking of a word that <laughs> you know that wasn't erogenous sense. I'm seeing paraphilias. I'm seeing olfactophilia, which is t- attraction to smell. Yeah, that's sexual attraction to smell. Olfactophilia. But it's still sexual, see, which I didn't see, want. See, we're different. We have we have factophilia, which is just facts. <laughs> right. I'm gonna say parosmias zones. Parosmias. Parosmias zones. That was close. It was close. Because that that's related to smells. Mm-hmm. Whatever. Smelly zones. Different smelly zones of the body that are unrelated to sex. Sex. Sexual. Completely sex. unrelated <laughs> to sexual sex. Um, I've got it written down here. Upper back and forehead would also work. Does for me. Does for me. <laughs> if the forehead was an erogenous zone, that would be... <laughs> oh, what a world. <laughs> Wonderful. What a different planet it would be. Um, anyway, basically, she did lots of tests, uh, correctly diagnosed most of the 43 people. Probably all of them. I don't know, but I can't confirm. But definitely a lot of them, right? She also diagnosed one of the controls, right? She said, this dude is one of the people you've told me that has, like, this dude out of the lineup has Parkinson's, right, from this sebum that I can smell. 
they go, ha ha, he was actually one of the controls. He doesn't have Parkinson's, right? A couple of weeks later, he comes in and goes, yeah, so you're going to have to add me to that Parkinson's list because it turns out he does have <laughs> Parkinson's. So she diagnosed a guy with Parkinson's before he knew himself that he had Parkinson's and then he signed himself up for a Parkinson's test. Oh, God. Which is really unfortunate. <laughs> right. So these chemicals are in sebum. Sebum's the oily stuff that goes in your skin. Uh, teenagers have a lot of it, which is why we get spots. Um, the chemicals uh, from this paper I read is apparently perylic aldehyde, octadecanal, and also saw hippuric acid. Right? Um, these are usually plant metabolites, right? Right. Also metabolites produced with lipase, right? So... Parkinson's has been seen to cause skin disorders such as seborrheic dermatitis. Seborrheic dermatitis. Okay. As a premotor feature of Parkinson's. Um, so a premotor feature of Parkinson's. I don't think it's caused directly by Parkinson's, but people with Parkinson's tend to have a lot of it, right? Um, right. It will be caused indirectly by Parkinson's due to dopamine problems somewhere in the body, right? Anyway... You end up with seborrheic dermatitis as a premotor feature of Parkinson's. And what does a seborrheic dermatitis do? Well, people with seborrheic dermatitis have an increased malassezia density, right? And malassezia is a genus of fungi of which <gasps> yeast is a part, right? And so what happens is that people with seborrheic dermatitis have an increased yeast colony count, because of this, they end up with more lipase on their skin because yeast is breaking, breaking down lipids. Mm -hmm. um, so what I've written here is, conclusively, super smeller woman smells breakdown of fats by increased yeast counts on her husband's skin, which is a hallmark of Parkinson's disease. And um, not many studies have been done on this, only recently in the news. But I think this is going to be a really great way of diagnosing people really, really early with Parkinson's disease, given that she diagnosed her husband by smelling him a good 10 years before he ever had a violent episode and had to go into hospital. That's brilliant. Yeah, that is an ex extraordinary fact. Thank you. I'm now recording again. Yeah, he's recording again. Okay, so last fact. Um, Give me the goodness. Or, or not last fact, next fact. Candidate filer radiation. Intrigue. Can what? Candidate filer radiation. Candidate filer radiation. Can candidate, like a can like an electoral candidate, right? Filer, like fi like filer genetics, but just the beginning, the first word, filer. filer. Phyla radiation. Phyla radiation is as this, in light. Is this a or... question? <laughs> no, it's a statement. Three words. It's a mission statement. Because I, I first came across candidate phyla radiation, or, or CPR, which is what it's called. Not, not, not that CPR, but this is another CPR. <laughs> this is what CPR means. And I first came across CPR, and I looked at the tree of life, and it had a sort of tiny little offshoot, right? This tiny little blue squiggle, and that was eukarya. So that blue squiggle represented all of life that we kind of know. And then there was a few more blue squiggles that were sort of purple, and they were like bacteria, prokarya. And I'm like, yeah, I know what those are. They're like bacteria, isn't it? They, they give you diseases and stuff. And there was a little more squiggle, and it was called archaea. And I was like, I just about know what archaea are. We kind of learn about them. They're like bacteria, but even stupider. And they live in like hot vents and do all sorts of things. Archaea, right? That's, that's, that's what, that's what life is. And then 
I'd say at least 70% of the wheel is taken up by these massive squiggles, which I've never heard of, and it just says CPR, Candidate Filer Radiation, and it's taken up at least 50% of the tree of life here, and I realized I had no idea at all what it was, and uh, that, that scared me as a biologist. So I, I googled what Candidate Filer Radiation was, assuming it was some, you know, mistake or whatever, or something I already heard of. But actually, Candidate Filer Radiation is the, the sort of name for all the tiny half-organisms that we, like, find or just pick up from soil and stuff like that. So what, I, what do I mean by that? Well, there's a method of looking for, you know, genetic information called metagenomics. And because what we used to do back in the 1800s, or, you know, the 1900s, to be honest, is we, we'd get cell cultures. So we'd get little swabs, and we'd swab things around around the world, and we'd put them in these, these agar jelly jars, and we'd let them grow, and we'd see what bacteria we had, and we'd categorize them, and we'd, we'd name them, and that would be how we discovered things. But the people recently realized that a lot of stuff doesn't actually grow very well in agar or in plates. You can't actually culture it. So we're missing out on a lot of life here. Yeah. The best way to actually... To actually sequence as much life as possible is literally just to go out into like some mines and scoop up some toxic waste, or to go out into I don't know some soil and just and just scoop out some some soil from some random place in Antarctica, or go to Times Square and you know lick some guy's belly button or whatever. Literally just get random places, literal environmental samples, and then you stick them in a PCR machine and whatever genes are in there, you blow them up, you filter them out, and you see what you have. Don't bother growing them. Just literally take them raw, see what you have. And that's when we started getting all these weird little things. And these are things that aren't, are barely alive. They can only synthesize certain compounds. You know, they're very, very basic. It's really odd. They're like little half organisms. How have we never heard of this? CPR? I don't know. CPR, they make up a huge amount of diversity. Probably most of the diversity on our planet. What a stupid name as well. Candidate, I know, candidate filer radiation. Sounds so boring. I don't know why I started with that, because it's such a boring name. And we're discovering more as well. Like, if you went outside, you would find more of these. You could do it now, today. You could find some more of them. You could add to that tree of life yourself, right now, if you wanted to. But who would? Because they're so badly named. But who would? Because they're so <laughs> dumb. They're so badly named. Even if you look at the orders, they're just, like, named after dudes. It's just like, oh, this is this is Howlett bacteria. This is Anderson bacteria. Mike's bacteria. This is this is like F- Fred bacteria, Jackson bacteria. I'm naming all of them, <laughs> like Ur bacteria. What? These are so shit. Wolf bacteria, Harrison bacteria. That's the name of a a massive clade of life on this planet. It's just Harrison bacteria. <laughs> There's Yafonsky nice. bacteria. That's quite cool. Ryan bacteria. Ryan, <laughs> Ryan bacteria. Nelson bacteria. Terry bacteria. There's Terry. There's <laughs> Terry bacteria. It's just called Terry bacteria. Lloyd bacteria. There's Hug bacteria. Aww. Aww. They've just given up. Like, you name, you just find one. If you find 10 a day, what are you going to do? Name them interesting things? No, you just name after random blokes. Kevin. Yeah, I mean, they're not bacteria. Like, they're, they're, they're more simple than bacteria. So they're not even. Most of them are, at least. But they're early bacteria, you know. I mean, some of them are, some of them aren't. They're, they're described as obligate symbionts, which means that they can't really live on their own. Like, in a massive compost heap, you might have lots of bacteria, and then even smaller than them, you might have these little things that only do one chemical. So they're just like a tiny protein that just synthesizes one chemical. It hits a chemical, does a thing. Hits a chemical, does a thing. Hits a chemical, does a thing. They're as simple as life gets, I would say. They're not really a protein. 
Some of them have lipid membranes, some of them don't. Some of them can't make lipids. Some of them can't make ATP. Some of them can't make all sorts of things that you think they need. Some of them only have, like, five genes, and they have self-splicing introns, which means their genes are essentially just constantly being recycled all the time. Nice. But they represent most of the life on this planet, and you can categorize them. You could spend your whole life categorizing them. The answer to where life started probably lies somewhere in metagenomics, in just going out into the world and gathering stuff. Nice. That's candidate final radiation. That's it. I could do one more mini fact I just remembered I had, actually, if you Throw want. in a mini fact. Throw in a mini fact. Cool. Throw in a mini fact. This is going to be a, just a quick one. Snake venom. I'm going to throw in a mini fact as well. Oh, great. Oh, this is going well. I like this. Snake venom, Henry. So I told you, you know about snake venom, don't you? Mm-hmm. It, it, like, you know, it can ruin your nerves or it can ruin your blood. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hematoxins, neurotoxins. They can do all sorts of stuff. What would you say is the biggest factor determining variation in snake venom? Would you say it is age, species, location, diet? Or would you say it, like, I don't mm. know, any... What would you say mm. is the biggest factor determining variation? Diet. Correct. See, that's... Um, boom, boom. Not what I expected you to say, because it's not what I assumed. But yeah, I am proud of you. So so essentially, snake venom is entirely determined by diet, basically. Um, to the extent that younger animals, younger snakes, they tend to have... Um, uh, venom that is more targeted towards killing smaller animals, like small lizards or small mice. And as they get older, the venom targets larger animals that they'll now be able to eat. Uh-huh. So it's it's actually epigenetic, which is quite cool. So, for example, as an animal changes its diet slowly over time, it starts to produce compounds that are more toxic to what it's been eating. Right. And I have no idea how they managed to do that. Like, Wait, so it reads the genes, reconstructs an image of the animal, and goes, what's the best way to kill this animal? Probably not genes, but but maybe... maybe. Uh, like, but that's like that's that's what it seems like it's doing. I mean, I guess... Yeah, it's like, maybe, maybe it's just compounds that are found. I'm eating a lot of fish amino acids. I'm probably eating fish right now. I guess I will confirmationally change the DNA in my venom glands in order to produce proteins that kill fish better. Even though, uh, on, the, on the face of it, there's no way of knowing what proteins kill fish better by knowing you're eating fish. But that must be hardwired into them somehow. It's mad. It's completely mad. And if you, fe- if you start feeling snakes different things, their venom composition will change. Because I always assumed, maybe, maybe completely stupidly, but I always assumed if you took two snakes of the same species, they would kind of have similar venom. Right. And if you took two snakes of a different species, they'd have similar venom. But no, a snake that eats fish and a snake that eats fish in different species will have more similar venom than their own species eating a different thing, if that makes sense. Oh, right, yeah, jeez. Jeez. And that makes me wonder, like, anti-venoms, it really fucks up anti-venoms a lot. You know, snakes eating... Because they just, they're changing their venom every five seconds. Yeah, exactly. How can you have a reliable anti-venom against Russell's Viper if the Russell's Vipers in one area eat more rats than another area, so it just doesn't work? So you've got to control their diet as well as... The antivenom. You go. You can't control their diet. So long as they're still eating rats, this antivenom will work. Yeah, kind of. Like a lot. Like I I don't know. I always assumed that venom was a. This is the adder, so it has this venom. Here is some adder venom in a tube. But no, it's completely. It's nothing like that. And there's a whole field called venomics, which is a really interesting field. I don't know. I I just think I think it's very clever. I thought when I said diet, what I meant was it's specific to species' average diet. Ah. So if this snake tends to eat meerkats, 
then it's just going to be really good at killing meerkats, which seems quite straightforward, you know, because that's just evolution, yeah. right? But I didn't realize that within a snake's lifetime, it ate one meerkat that one time and is now better at killing meerkats. Jesus. It's pretty fucking cool. It is pretty fucking cool. My my one was that yaks, which live in high altitudes, have got new lung cells, which are more fibrous in their lungs, which are able to process a larger amount of oxygen from a like, thinner air. And humans, although, like, I don't know, what's the name of those those people who live in the Himalayas? Sherpas. Oh, right. They've got, uh, they're thought to be genetically better at processing uh, lower oxygen counts. That's why they, like, use oh, yeah. less time. oxygen masks up at the top and, like, they're really hardcore people. Um, but there's a low chance that they've actually got any uh, significant evolutionary change because they've only really been up in the mountains for, like, 30,000 years or something. Well, I mean, there is, because they have found evidence that they can take in much higher percentages of oxygen with the, by their haemoglobin. And that's because there's evidence of interbreeding between us and another species of human called Denisovans. So Denisovans evolved in high altitude places. And there were another species of Homo as well. So this is going to link right back to the hybrid stuff. Because there's there's evidence of Denisovan DNA within people in that area. So that suggests that when their ancestors came to live in the mountains, there was interbreeding between humans and Denisovans, just like there is between us and Neanderthals here. And that Denisovan DNA gave them the ability to have this really, really high oxygen fidelity in their blood. Isn't it cool that Neanderthals were smarter than us? Like we aren't the smartest. We aren't the smartest Homo guys. I hate to break it to you. No. Like our brains were not as big as Neanderthal brains or as complicated. They had like larger brain capacity than us. We were dumber. It's just that we liked making friends and we felt safer in larger groups. So when it came to homo on homo wars, uh, we would tend to win because we would bring more friends than the Neanderthal guys who were more like lone wolf hunters than uh, pack hunters like us. We would also make societies like we would make a little village. We'd all live in the same cave or the same area, you know, so like we'd get onto the ideas of like working together exactly you know, raising children together doing group shit because teamwork makes the dream work and homo <laughs> neanderthals were not like yeah i don't know yeah essentially i mean there's a there's a cool theory which is that like i, I should have mentioned i was going to tell you about this but this is to do with the domestication stuff that's last episode. Last Listen episode. to domesticated jelly bean meteors for uh, information on what domestication is and how it comes about. Yes, but in that episode, Henry asked me, Sam, uh, what would happen if humans were domesticated? And I said, I, I, don't, I don't fucking know. But but actually, there's this cool theory about the history of humanity where if you, if you look at our facial structure relative to older homos and stuff like that, there's evidence that what what happened a long time ago when we started becoming much more social we switched from selecting for more machiavellian individuals you know individuals that are more more selfish we switched from that to selecting for individuals that are much more selfless you know that give more to groups and if you look at for example hunter gatherer tribes there's a lot of emphasis on like being humble and leaders are chosen if they're like kind people like they're all very democratic or very honest a similar thing happened to us as happened to dogs when dogs started selecting for friendliness when they were being domesticated oh we lost adrenaline well the idea is maybe that happened <laughs> we lost adrenaline our ears grew and we became less scary yeah and like we developed blonde hair you know we developed a lot of weird traits blonde hair. people are always asking the question how come chimpanzees all look essentially the same 
but then you look at humans and they're one species but they look completely different what's that about but then you look at dogs dogs are one species and they look completely different and that's because you get these changes that happen through domestication yeah and they're mostly epigenetic and stuff like that and to the canalization but but with humans similar phenomenon it's one way of looking at it humans were bred to be good i think yeah over, over time and that's why we beat the neanderthals because we start collaborating that's when you actually start getting knowledge you know if you put me right now like just me if i was born in the jungle to fend for myself yeah without without the ability to listen to podcasts and deliver podcasts where would yeah exactly i like i would be a dumber person we have the benefit of having thousands of years of social knowledge can i second that yeah there was studies done on not teaching children any form of language before an age of like five and they saw that if the child had not learned a language before the age of five or any way of communicating, whether it's sign language or a spoken language, etc., right? Mm-hmm. Their brain is irreparably damaged and they can't learn stuff beyond the age of like a six-year-old, they said, in IQ levels. That's really interesting. And that lines up. So like a lot of studies were done where it's like you get a human toddler and then you get like a chimpanzee and a gorilla and all these great apes. You test them on a bunch of aspects of intelligence on like reasoning we're all kind of the same on memory we're all kind of the same with the great apes and human toddlers on like all these different things we're kind of very similar if not if not dumber on social learning though the ability to learn from others and read expressions we're like 50 times better yeah the 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 thing that differentiates us from animals is our ability to copy and learn from others we learn a language and then we can learn so much more exactly Right, and that is why you guys should keep listening to our podcasts. Because <laughs> you might become feral. Who knows? The thing that differentiates us from apes is podcasts at the end of the day. Yeah. You know? Not podcasts, our podcasts. <laughs> oh, yeah. Not like Naked Scientists or any of that shit. Our podcasts. Our podcasts. Is, uh, is the thin veneer of civilization separating us from havoc. Yeah. Thanks, guys. You're listening to the Substandard Model.